You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. Hey, everyone. This is Aaliyah, and thank you for joining us. Today, we are speaking with Anaya Petty, and she is a local entrepreneur who calls herself the Pivot Table Princess uh, because she loves organizing data for the public good. So we're really excited to have her on the show and to get her perspective. Welcome, Anaya. Thank you both for having me. I'm really excited to talk today. I'm super hyped. So we just had during our little pre-call and already touched on childcare, women's issues, minority issues, importance of data, small business. And this is 100% our jam. This is what Ali and I are all about, (laughs) what we for fun talk about in our spare time. So not really looking at what you do right now, but what's been your journey to make you an advocate and so passionate about all of those things I just mentioned? So I would say that I started off my career in a social justice space, and I started off really doing a lot of nonprofit work, doing a lot of prison reform work um, with a lot of reentry programs focused on women and families and how do you reintegrate someone successfully back into a community. And that really exposed me to a lot of the systemic challenges when someone is coming home from a period of incarceration and they're looking to get a job sustain themselves, be productive, there are a lot of barriers. There's housing, there's education, there's a time away that you may have spent. And that really led me um, on a path to kind of various points. Um, So after college, I ran a labor rights clinic at Brett for the City here in Washington, D.C., where I helped low-wage workers get their rights for employment. So that's everything from Um, unpaid wages, workers' compensation. And I saw a lot of people really, really be mistreated by their employers. I mean, people who may have worked for the government for 30 years, slip, fall, or, you know, something really bad happen, not be able to be compensated for a number of years, even domestic workers who, I always remember this woman who told me that she was sleeping in the basement of her employer's home and he would only let her out like once a day. What? Wow. Yeah. And it was like, what is this? This is madness. Um, And in that job, it was AmeriCorps, and I actually had a legislative victory. I worked with the D.C. Fair Budget Coalition, and a lot of the stories that I kind of gathered and the the workers who became advocates for themselves, we um, were able to get triple damages kind of passed as a a legislation here in D.C. So anyone whose employer, you know, withholds pay or underpays them, um, you know, or threatens them in that kind of way, they're able to get – their wages and three times that amount now, which is really kind of, you know, a part of kind of restorative justice where it's like, okay, we can try to make someone whole. Um, And then kind of winding back to that, that's what led me actually to kind of public policy and more um, along kind of the justice route where I worked actually in the Gray administration doing um, public safety. I was a program analyst for the deputy mayor of public safety and justice. And that was when I got to see the intersection between okay, justice issues and justice grants. When there was a summer crime spike, one of the things that I saw kind of a lot of different agencies and kind of private entities who were philanthropic come together and being like, how do we keep children safe? What do we do to have them engaged? And I was like, oh my God, you know, summer camp, (laughs) you know, let them go swimming kind of things that, you know, children should be able to do. And that was my first experience kind of seeing kind of the justice community come together with kind of um, philanthropic initiatives. So what, can I just interrupt you real quick? Yeah. What led you to care about these issues? Because I know a lot of people experience 
these issues mm-hmm. or they experienced them with somebody telling them or just in everyday conversations, what made you actually like what pulled at your heartstrings to make you care about these issues? When I was really, really young, my father's a roster and he would actually go visit other people who were in prison, who were in prison. Um, and do prison Mm -hmm. ministries with them. And that was also kind of an intersection between like being incarcerated and immigration because a lot of these people who were not citizens of the United States, if you get a certain criminal charge, you also get deported. Right, right. Um, And so I saw him go and kind of have these kind of conversations with people that he knew from his own community um, being incarcerated. And that really stuck with me. And then I also did see something that happened. I'm a native Washingtonian. And in the late, no, early 2000s, probably like 2003, there was a significant crime spike where young people, a lot of my peers, like people I went to junior high school with, they were still in cars. And so they would get arrested over the weekend. And they go to, this is not a place that exists anymore. They go to Oak Hill, which is um, mm-hmm. now it's, uh, I forget what it's called now, but basically they would go there and it was kind of like a cycle of churn where I would see people and they'd be like, oh, I have you know, you go to class with somebody and then like they're not here on Mondays because they got arrested right. for like stealing cars right. and joyriding. And I was like, oh, you know, like, wow, you just went to juvie for the weekend or something bad happened. Um, and so I saw I had this kind of intimate experience like where my father did this, but also kind of like where I saw some of my peers where it's like, wow, you know, like you really got arrested. And I also saw some I remember even some people who were um, involved in kind of more serious crimes even. So I went to a, a junior high school in Southwest that was like an intersection. So a lot of people from across the city came there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you could just kind of see, especially something that kind of draws in gentrification is that I went to school at Jefferson Junior High School, which is now the waterfront. And at that time, where Navy Yard is now currently, that was a big project <laughs> full of people. Yep. And this was at the period of time when they were redeveloping the project. So there was all of this transition um, that was happening too. And that kind of brought up a lot of, in terms of the people that I went to school with who lived in those communities, a lot of neighborhood violence that they would sometimes bring to school too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that um, I'm pausing about is, as you told your story and your journey, you use the word intersection a lot. Mm-hmm. And just the connectivity between these issues from you know where you live and the place you live and how that influences you know your educational opportunities to the connections between, you know, you talked about sort of immigration and housing and transportation. And I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit more about how those intersections have showed up in your work as well. So I I see a lot of that coming together because these are the things that make communities. It's like, where do you live? How do you move around the community? What, how do you, like, how do you access money, right? And so like literally, um, to go back to the junior high school example, I would get to the bus on, I would get to school on the 70 bus. And the 70 bus is a cross town bus. It goes from like, Silver Spring to um, Buzzard Point. So that's a very long route. Um, And it picks up like a lot of different people along the way. Um, And like even kind of that being the way that a lot of us would get to and from school, maybe you get off, you get on another bus to go here or there. Um, But I kind of saw being able that it also, being that it spans such a wide range of communities, you can kind of see like what investment looks like. You know, where are the trees? Mm-hmm. Who has a house? Where the apartment buildings are? Where you don't want to get or off the bus where at? You natu- <laughs> right, where you naturally don't like look or don't pay attention. And I had that same experience. Um, mm-hmm. I'm from like the suburbs of Philadelphia on the Jersey side where mm-hmm. you take the train into Philly and it's like there's Camden and you don't pay attention, which is sad. Right. But Or even I feel like in public health, folks are always saying, well, your zip code is more important than your genetic code. 
And I think for some people, that's just a phrase that you've read in a story or, you know, a textbook. But I think when you can see it, whether you're riding the bus or you're walking through, you know, a neighborhood, you can immediately tell when something's changed, when there has been disinvestment, when something is not the same. And I think yeah. a lot of people, it becomes easy just not to pay attention to that. You just walk faster yeah. instead of thinking about why, why is this? Mm-hmm. It's funny you bring that up because when all of this was happening, we didn't, we knew that the neighborhood, especially like in middle school, that things were changing because when they closed down um, Capers, a project, people had to move physically around. And so the pro- it wasn't, um, people couldn't go to the same school and it changed the feeding patterns of schools. So like for me, I grew up in um, Bloomingdale, like in Northwest. And a lot of people, as we were saying, in D.C., like grew up a little further uptown or maybe they're in the Southeast. That determines where you do go to school and how you're going to move after that. And something that kind of, to go back to opportunities the junior high school I went to there were tracks so there were people and like homerooms and groups of classes where it was like this is like the smart group of kids and these are the people who maybe have a little more issues or problems um and you can kind of see basically where people were able to go to high school based on kind of like the classes they took or opportunities or even kind of like where they lived because some of the people who I went to junior high school with they went to high school with me and I've also went to college with some of them and there's other people or that's not the trajectory that we all that they ended up taking. And that's Uh, what's imprinted on them. There is a really great book called It Takes What It Takes by Trevor Moad. And uh I'm pretty sure, not in the book, but in an interview, I listened to him talking with, with a podcaster was saying when he initially took his SATs, he scored really, really high, right? Like Uh almost perfect score. But he wasn't that kid. He didn't get the good grades. He didn't whatever. And so when he got that SAT score, he was like, holy shit, like I'm actually smart. And then started applying himself like a person who would almost get a perfect score on the SATs. He went really far in like college, grad school, whatever. Uh I'm not sure if he went to grad school. Then he found out later that there was a glitch and something happened to where his score was really like really, really low, like less than a thousand. But he was like that mindset. When I got that score and I saw that score, I believed that I was that score and I operated and I acted differently. And when we put people in these tracks, when they're in school, we tell them right away, you're only worth this. And therefore they operate like that. And the importance of identifying exactly what you said, like how do we address those tracks or how do we address what people think of themselves based on the positions that we put them in? is so, Uh so powerful and transformative in how we address any type of community development. I think also, too, staying staying here on mindset for a minute, because it's not just the tracks that you're placing in school, but I I think you're bringing up a really good point around when neighborhoods change and people are displaced. We don't often talk about how that displacement and the change in terms of now where you're living, now the school that you go to, the people you see, the friends you're around, like what are the mental health impacts of that and Mm -hmm. how does that affect how you show up and how do you see the world around you? I think it's easy for us to say, oh, well, look, we have a new, we have a new development and this development is amazing. But what happened to the people who were there originally? And in your story, the kids, like kids, what is, what is the mental health or the mindset impacts on our children of displacement? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that's really fascinating to kind of see, like to kind of go back to where the where the junior high school is located, just how different the neighborhood looks, like even with the wharf. I mean, this was at a point in time where it was just kind of like Phillips, if I don't know if you all remember <laughs> that Phillips was there, or like the Zanzibar. And there wasn't really a lot. There was a, there was a fish market, of course. But to kind of see that and see kind of... Um, you know, like this also something that was interesting that I know is that 
at this time when I was going to junior high school, there were really two big middle schools. There has, at least in my lifetime, not not been a lot of educational choice in terms of public middle schools in D.C. So um, you either could go to private school, charter school, or, you know, a public school. And there were two large ones. And I remember maybe I left that middle school in eighth grade. So this is like 2004. By the time it was 2009, the school was underpopulated. At one point in time, it was overpopulated. Like, I mean, like maybe the building was made for 400 students. We had like maybe 800, 600 people there. Um, and by the, you know, like by at least 2016, 2019, maybe 300 people, maybe a little less. Um, and that's kind of directly correlated to exactly what you're talking about, this change where they, um, and of course now Navy Yard is full of wonderful condos, a lot of redevelopment, but it was a community of families who had children. And that's not yet the case where these children, the people who live there now have at least from what I've known demographically, they don't have a lot of school-age children either. So, so it is really interesting. I want to um, jump us forward a little bit because I know you are a new entrepreneur mm-hmm. and part of that comes from, you know, you're also a new mom mm-hmm. and this passion that you have for children. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your business and mm-hmm. the work that you do and the impact you're trying to have on children and families. So my business really came about actually, I when I was 25, I started the business and I worked for myself. I worked for the local philanthropy. I was like, oh my God, this is like what it feels like to be a boss. Like, oh my God, I can just, you know, check in when I want to. I'm doing this work. Um, And the thing that kind of happened is I decided to kind of go back to traditional work. Um, And when I became a mother, one of the things that really happened, I knew about this from a policy level, I was like, oh, the misogyny. (laughs) There is not a lot of things put in place for people who, if you are a family member or a person who is pregnant, um, that support your well-being. And so I found myself at this intersection of being like, okay, I want to be able to be present and engage with my daughter when she is young. um, And I also want to be doing work that I love. And so what that led to was that I was like, okay, how do we, you know, what's the sweet spot with that? The sweet spot was kind of looking at community engagement and kind of thinking about, okay, what is the market need here? And I realized that for a lot of organizations, private or public, they don't really understand public space. They don't understand communities. They're really afraid or they have a tentative approach to how do I engage or how do I respectfully enter this space where I'm trying to make change? Um, And I started doing that work with actually real estate developers when I was pregnant. I was thinking about, okay, you know, how can I help you, you know, make friends, make neighbors? You know, what does it mean to be like a good neighbor to someone? It's like, you don't just come over immediately and just kind of like, you know, tell people how to, you know, don't put your table. That seems to be um, the common (laughs) place. We Christopher Columbus everything. We live here. Oh, I mean, (laughs) we do this. I mean, you know, the nimbyism and everything is very, very strong. But I think what I've had to, what I've, kind of the way that I pivot with a lot of people is that like, okay, I know that there are a lot of people are afraid of being yelled at. They feel like um, when they enter into a community, whether it's to provide grants or they're putting up a new development, like they feel like the community is going to come down with them. Like, you don't love us, (laughs) you know, like this kind of haranguing moment. And I was like, well, you know, you have to kind of think about this place that has a character and it's a culture and it's a living, breathing thing. And things were, people were here who loved it as it is, right? (laughs) Right. And you coming in and kind of being like, it's better because I'm here is, you know, condescending. So, like, let's kind of find the way that we can have this kind of crosswalk of conversation because that's really important. And I think, too, if people are if people feel that way and are frustrated with you, I think at some point 
you need to hear that. I think we want to shield ourselves because we don't want to feel uncomfortable. I know in my Mm -hmm. career, I've done a lot of work with like different institutions Mm -hmm. who really want to come in and do programs in communities, provide services, or even, you know, build infrastructure, do grant programs. And they'll say, well, we've had a bat, you know, people don't like what we've done in the past or mm-hmm. people are angry with us and I don't want to go to a meeting where I'm going to get yelled at. And I'm mm-hmm. kind of just like, you know what? At some point you got to get yelled at. Like you got to hear it. Like people I, need to, people need to express how they're feeling and then we can move from that. Like there's part of a healing and a discussion that doesn't always happen. I think in urban planning circles. There's a yeah. important level of understanding and mm-hmm. when, and also stereotyping. And so in my experience, we come in, I say we, cause I've probably been in circles where the redevelopment happened and maybe was exclusive, but we come in and we say, oh yeah, we're going to do the grants. We're going to give the program. We're going to offer these services. And there's never any empowerment or real upward mobility for the people who live there. The uh-huh. conversation has to change to okay, this is, this is the education bracket that this community currently finds themselves in. This is the income bracket. You have leadership positions. How can you be a benefit to get them into your leadership positions? In the long uh-huh. run, this isn't a quick game. This isn't, I'm going uh-huh. to put $20,000 into a grant because it's going to make me feel better about myself and really have no real impact. If we're really being intentional with the companies, with the organizations that are coming into our communities, we have to say, what's the path to success within your organization for somebody who lives here? Because we put these local hiring mandates, which Uh are super problematic, and we can talk about that a whole other time. But Uh it's like they want people at the end of the shovel. They don't want those people's trucks running projects. And I I stole that from somebody, a great entrepreneur named Alex Smith with Division Street Landscaping. I did not come (laughs) up with that myself, but it's it's facts. I agree with everything you're saying because what I also kind of do, and this is where I kind of see myself as being unique, is that I consider myself to be a translator. I feel like ultimately the community does want the same things in terms of a lot of people do want more community amenities. People do want better sidewalks. People do want you know, lighting and the things that, you know, make a community feel vibrant, as we would say in community development. Um, What also happens that is very true is that people do have a right to be upset. They've been ignored, divested from, you know, pushed to the side. And what happens with a lot of the people who come in with the money, because that's what I really kind of think about this is is like, it's really money. It comes down to like who has it, how they're going to do it. Um, And I think for a lot of people, what I end up telling the community leaders is that what I what I can benefit most from and how we can work together is I need a response, not a reaction to. So I was like, you know, before this conversation does occur, you know, let's put some thought around what you would like to see. Cause we know what you, you know, like you're very good. And maybe there is this really a lot of language around what you do not like, but how do we get to what you would like to see? How can we, you know, you as a community put forth the vision that you would like, because the people with the money, they have the drawings, they have the charrettes, they have the money, they have people all the time doing that. They have the vision for you. Um, And, you know, along with being, you know, able to push back, let's talk about how we can negotiate from a strength of place. And I think that comes from you having a sense of your values as a community. And I think that's something that, you know, to go back to empowerment is really important. And it's something that I stress and kind of a lot of my engagements is that the people here, you know, they don't feel empowered because there's been this kind of condescending conversation where they're talked down to, you know, where it's multiple syllables about 
you know, investment, you know, bottom sheet, bottom lines, profit and loss. And the people in the community are just kind of like, I would like a street light. You know, I want to be able to cross the street safely. People die at this intersection because people speed. I'm wondering if you could help us and help our listeners kind of understand a little bit of how you facilitate these conversations and translate these dynamics. Because my assumption is, you know, some of the clients you're working with who are bringing the money and the capital, then this is the very reason why Katie and I created Checkbox Outreach. They're like, mm-hmm. look, we have a plan. We have a vision. We have the money. We have what we have, want set up. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a series of meetings, but we've never been taught likely how to posture ourselves in a way of receiving what community has to say or doing these intensive outreach plans. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, I mean, it can be really scary to be in a conversation where there's a power imbalance where you're wondering, okay, do I know the right terms? Do I know what to say? Do I know how much money is coming into our community? I'm scared of being pushed out of my community. And so what does it actually look like to facilitate, translate these conversations? So what I would say is that um, when I am, I do have two separate conversations with the person or the entity that's coming in that has the money, you know, from the community development space, I tell them you have to be a listener first. You cannot come roll out your plans. Like yeah. that mm-hmm. is um, really where you're going to be yelled at. <laughs> there's a pre- you become extremely presumptuous. Like you assume that you know what's best, right? And we've all, and especially in communities of color, that's something that a lot of us have dealt with is this presumption that someone knows better than us or someone knows what we should have and that it's coming from this place of inadequacy that we don't know how to do that for ourselves. And so I'm like, you know, you may have these plans, but let's set this aside and let's kind of listen to see you know, like, does this even make sense? You know, like, are you kind of jumping the gun? Is there a way that this can be more inclusive? I know that you spend a lot of time and money in this, but like, how can we be more collaborative? Because that is going to allow you to partner with the community. So I'm like, okay, let's put your listening ears on. Let's hold out with the grand, you know, like, um, I know you've all seen these presentations where they show up with the models and they have the dogs walking in, you know, like the imaginary no customer. no people of color in, <laughs> right? the, in the picture. Like, right? none. <laughs> right? And you're just kind of like, who's, who's this woman? You know, like, is she here already? Like, yeah. do you know her? <laughs> I've never seen like, her and her dog walking down my street. <laughs> I was like, I don't know this lady. I was like, this do- first of all, this dog doesn't even look like the dogs that are around here. If there are dogs. <laughs> And then for the community, what it actually has looked like is I'll go to the ANC, so the neighborhood advisory councils, I'll talk to council members or the constituent teams, and I'll say to them, you know, they have a plan, you know, and they have a plan that they want to execute. And I said, and I'll often say to them, I was like, I know that you all also have desires, right? So let's talk about what that can look like. So I often try to arm people with information. I'll be like, this is what they know about the community from a, you know, purely data statistic perspective like this is how much the houses are worth this is how many people rent their homes versus own their homes this is what they're projecting things to look like because a lot of that information um in a constituent service is kind of like very local hyper local sense is not what your constituents are coming to you about they're not talking about the fact that like there aren't enough owners people don't own enough homes here right <laughs> like yep. they're not saying like oh my god i can't believe that um, you know, these things are happening. It's more, you know, property related kind of interpersonal issues, dynamics, right? And so I often say to them, you know, what would it look like for you? Or how can we get to a point where you all as a community can put forth what you would like to see? You know, is it that you, for instance, um, I was talking, this was maybe a year or two ago when I was working along Minnesota Avenue, and there's a very large developer. Um, 
I was talking to an ANC member and I was saying to him, I was like, you know, it's really, I don't think that you need to have all of the language, right? Like you don't need to necessarily um, be speaking in real estate development fluently, but having a vision is very, very important. And so I often kind of focus on that with the community. It's like, what's the vision look like? What does it feel like? If you had to describe it to someone, like what's the best day here for you? And it's like, what do you, you want it to look like? I see you as being this dope ass, like mediator essentially because you have to speak both languages and mm -hmm. especially on the development side when you have people that are coming to the table with a lot of money you have to be real at some point and being mm -hmm. like i know you're here to check a box which is yep. again why we launched checkbox outreach right like we're gonna call it what it is you are here to check a box because you don't want your zoning yep. to be a problem later and you need the community buy-in now like we get that that's that's mm -hmm. not why we're here so to speak both languages and have that middle ground while ultimately really empowering and bringing about that real meaningful change in the community is what, what I see your crown like kind of saying <laughs> on your head right now. And so it's, it's powerful and it's much needed. So I guess my question is what, can you just speak to quickly maybe some of the barriers? Like what, so you've, you've laid out the framework of what we need to do, how we can do that, but what are some things that can be expected? So when you go into these conversations, what are some of the things that you can just spew off of your top of your head right now? Like this is what they're, what the pushback is going to be. The pushback is um, what I've seen is a lot that there's a lot of intergenerational um, clashes in that, especially when you enter into a community and this goes on both sides. Like one of the things that I really try to, I like to work with teams, but something that I kind of want to do is, or like acknowledge is that there's going to be someone who's going to say, this isn't going to work. You know, like this community isn't ready for this. I remember, this is very random, but I remember, um, you know, someone who was a leasing agent telling me that Chipotle wouldn't do good in a neighborhood. And I was like, do you not know black people? Like this is rice and beans. You know what I mean? Like, this is like a very, you know, like black people eat Chipotle. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> but what I also had to understand was that, you know, for certain, um, companies to come into a community is about how much, how many, the foot traffic, yep. how, you know, like what's the return on investment. And I'll have to say that to, you know, on the community side, another barrier is that, you know, there are people who want a certain aesthetic or they really kind of like, I like it like this, but what, what I often kind of know is that they're talking about a feeling and a sense of community. They don't mm -hmm. want the neighbor, the feeling of the neighborhood to change. Right. They do want to have access to, um, you know, a tailor, or not even tailor, a dry cleaner, maybe even a hardware store, or even um, you know, other retail amenities that you know you might find in other economically diverse neighborhoods. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the big barriers. It's like some people are like this isn't going to work, and then also to be honest, there are gatekeepers on both sides. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, on the on the community development side where the money is coming from, there's a person who is, you know, the project manager who is very much like, I have to execute this project within this time is dollars and cents. And I know that's going to be something that's going to come up. And then there's also a little bit of resistance to this process because relationship building, it doesn't happen in two weeks. Right. Trust doesn't work yes. like that. You know, something that I say all the time that is from Adrian Marie Brown is we have to move at the pace of trust. <laughs> And that is not, you know, that's not 5G. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's very different <laughs> movement. Um, and then on the community side, what I often say, and this is like for the gatekeeper who is um, sometimes committed to wielding a certain amount of power and maybe, you know, likes the fact that they speak for the community. I'm also kind of like, you have to broaden the conversation. You know, I alone can't be the person who 
shares this information. You know, like it needs to be more widely disseminated. It has to be a topic of conversation frequently. I often push for, you know, like when you have these meetings, you know, drop the idea of having a vision. You know, there's nothing wrong with the community having a community action plan. I said, they're coming prepared. (laughs) You know, they have come prepared. They know you very, very well. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with you becoming very familiar with them also. Um, yeah. One of your superpowers is your ability to use data. And mm-hmm. I think we often hear in these conversations, we need more data, we need more data. But just when you have data, doesn't mean you know what to do with it. Can you talk a little bit about the, the use of data in these conversations? So what I often do is that um, when I do, especially with the, the interest or the people who have the desire to affect community change who are bringing in the money, I'll often say, I try to use qualitative data. So I think this is kind of like the difference um, in how I try to present things is that for a lot of them, especially with the entities that, you know, can collect, you know, the, um, the metropolitan statistical area information on a very, very high level, as well as kind of like tax information, they know about projections, they're, you know, they read the Wall Street Journal, they're very well versed in like quantitative things, they know how many people here have gone to jail, but it's like, okay, so do you know that these business owners have said these things? You know, like, how do you, I'm the one who has that kind of information about, like, these are what people come to community meetings and actually talk about. This is what makes this a human issue. You know, like, so you wanting, you know, I remember this was years ago when somebody was saying something about people accessing um, the Anacostia River. And I was like, you know, a lot of the people in this community don't come here. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily easy to get here by the bus. You have to drive, (laughs) you know, like, and these are things that statistics are not going to, they may show you that people have cars or that use this public transportation, but there's that disconnect. And then on the community side, I bring them the quantitative information. Cause I was like, this is what is going to drive, or this is what drives the people who are coming here. They see this as an emerging market. You know, what does that mean? They see that this is, you know, an area of high growth. There's people moving in. You know, they want to make things dense. Because that's also something else that I feel like is a part of um, how the conversation kind of, where the overlap is, but also where people are misaligned, is that, you know, often individuals with money come to arm with all of this quantitative information. They know about the average, the medium household income, how many people have gone to college. Um, they know a lot about you know, price per square foot. The community doesn't know that. They know how it feels to live here. They know that, um, you know, there may be violence related, or maybe it's carjackings, or maybe it's just kind of like, I don't do these certain things because I, you know, I don't have high-speed internet. I'm looking at solar panels. You know, like, there's some very different things that overlap, and that's so, how I use the data. I just got so excited on a business side, and I think we mm-hmm. have another call after this. I want to mm. help you mold a toolkit just for what you just said, because that's powerful alone. So the qualitative piece and the quantitative piece for different user groups, but how to market that and monetize that for you as a business owner, but for the good of the community. I think that's huge. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. I'm excited. I just got hype. I'm like taking notes. I'm like, and then she can do this and then she can do that. Yeah. No, I'm sitting here like, I want to know what's next for your business because I feel like you've touched on so many interesting things you're working on. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, give us a little snapshot of like where you're headed, um, some exciting things you're working on and maybe what you need if you were talking to other um, local decision makers or philanthropy, like what do you need to be able to do this next phase of your work? 
So what I'm really looking for, and I'm open to partnerships around this, is that I'm really looking for exactly what, you know, Katie just described is like how to, especially at this point in time with virtual, you know, everything being a little more virtual is how to kind of translate what I just said. Because a lot of the work that I'm doing or have been doing is in person and it does involve a lot of FaceTime, literally. Like I put in FaceTime with people um, talking about these things, collecting information or just doing the research. Um, so I would love to be able to work with somebody who could help me kind of exactly what Katie just described, kind of turn a lot of this into a tool back, toolbox so that I can disseminate it more widely as um, a solo entrepreneur. Um, and what I'm kind of working on is I'm actually partnering with um, another female Black-owned, woman-owned business. Um, and we're going in together on a lot of proposals around racial equity work um, and philanthropic work. Because what I, we see now, and I, I mean if there ever is a more apt moment <laughs> to talk mm-hmm. about racial equity and philanthropy, it's right now. Um, and really kind of working with a lot of philanthropic partners around how this is kind of, you know, missed them in a large sense, you know, like giving how, you know, how does this dollars and the things that they've done, you know, missing some of the impact because we're right now in this space where a lot of people are having to be reactionary because their strategies they had before don't kind of meet people's lived realities that they're that they're experiencing, um, and so I would, you know, love to continue doing more of that work with um, other people. Also, something that I'm kind of moving into that is um, aligned with kind of multiracial experiences of inequity is that I'm definitely having conversations with people about okay, how do we really kind of you know, people of color is a really great term, but I do feel like at times it's amorphous in how it's mm-hmm. applied. <laughs> Um, And so really kind of working with people, especially as a person who um, I speak Spanish, a little bit of Portuguese, again, kind of wanting us to have this kind of conversation around inequity um, and systemic change in our communities, because what does it look like to align ourselves very differently? What does it look like for us to kind of address um, community change? Because something that I know to be very true and you all do in community development is that, yes, we are in a pandemic, but construction has not stopped. (laughs) change is still happening (laughs) things are going to be continue to be built and um you know you can have multiple you can hold multiple truths at one time um and I think that for a lot of us especially people of color and especially black people we are used to that kind of intersectional weight um and I know that from a money standpoint a lot of people want to join us and are not sure how that works um and so it's kind of like okay let's bridge this how do we you know how do we make it real for you how do we kind of understand that these are things that we share together and how does that kind of um, that shared understanding and some shared history kind of relate to us being able to, like, you know, take this money and siphon it very differently for ourselves. So if any of our listeners want to talk to you about the issues you just raised or partner with you um, or kind of go deeper on some of the things you're working on, how can they get in touch with you? The best way to get in contact with me is through email. You can reach me at groundedcivics at gmail.com. Um, you can also give me a call. Maybe I'll give you my phone number. It's 202-253-9689. Again, that's 202-253-9689. Um, and I love talking about these things. This is my jam. This is like the things that I think about <laughs> a lot. Um, and so, you know, feel free to reach out to me. I generally get back to people within two business days um, and we can definitely talk more about any of these things. 
Awesome. Well, we have loved talking to you today. I feel like there are so many things that this conversation has touched on from racial equity to the power of place to displacement, gentrification, and even how we use data um, differently and how we can translate data across conversations. So I am so thankful for your time. I feel like this is only the beginning. I can't wait to read this toolkit that you and Katie put oh, together. She's about to run the bag all the way up. I'm so excited. <laughs> We're about to get it. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank you both so much for having me. I really love this conversation. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? Aaliyah, that episode, I think I could have talked probably for eight hours. I'm not even exaggerating or joking on every single topic that Anaya had mentioned. Yes. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to women of color and community development for connecting me with Anaya because I feel like she is just a badass woman who is transforming how we have these conversations in community development. I should actually further engage with your group because I get the emails and I was invited to participate maybe like last year, but I definitely yes by not. me. So please, <laughs> and I think um Kiva with yes, PNC yes. Bank, she yes. was the one who first put me onto that. I think. I mean, if you're looking for a network, and I think this goes out to our listeners too, of women of color who are doing great work in housing, community engagement, small business, entrepreneurship, it is definitely the place to meet fabulous women like Anaya. Here in D.C. So, yeah, it's here in D.C. It pulls women from, you know, Virginia, Maryland, whole DMV. Perfect. Perfect. All right. So I know we talked about a lot and these are things that you and I are very, very passionate about. What are your key takeaways? What are your key asks based on the episode? So key takeaway number one, I would say, is really hammering into this point around development without displacement. I know we talked a little bit about this in Kelvin's episode, but I think in the conversation with Anaya, we started to get into some specifics of what that means and what that looks like. The first being that when we are planning for new development, it has to be a participatory project and process. And that doesn't just mean like, let's get more people to the table. That really means like, we need to have a process for being accountable to communities. We need to have a process for being transparent. We need to be focused on how are we translating what's happening at that decision-making table so that we're not just bringing people to a table where they can't actually engage and can't actually make decisions, but we are shifting power and changing the dialogue so that when I'm invited, I actually know what are the things that have already been decided and what are the things where there's room for my voice to come in and not just inform, but actually maybe make some decisions. Yeah. And that's really mostly why I started Zero Model Nova was looking at how do we generate our own wealth to be able to stay in communities? Because look at the affordable housing crisis in Northern Virginia, and you look at market rate housing and Developers literally cannot make their numbers work to meet the affordable housing numbers that we really truly need. So it comes down to helping or getting people to a place where their income can support them staying in their communities. And we do that through making sure that the workforce development programs and the education programs actually put people to a level that they can compete for the housing that they're going to be displaced by, right? Like we can't just keep saying like it's programs or it's come to the table, get involved, money talks. And at the end of the day, people need to be able to go toe to toe to say, hey, I can afford that property. I can live there. I can pay my rent. I can get that mortgage. Because until we get to that level as a community for black and brown people, 
we are going to get displaced. Like the ratio is going to be really, really upside down like it has been. Right. But I think what also comes through in what you're saying is it's not just one thing. So the way to prevent displacement is not just more affordable housing. That's key and that's important, but it's also wealth creation programs like you're talking about. It's also protections for tenants and homeowners that are facing pressure from rising prices, whether that's eviction protections or just compensation policies or um, right of first refusal policies. There also has to be efforts around preserving the affordable housing that's already there and making sure that people can stay. And then there are other efforts around businesses. So housing is one component, but also the businesses and the small businesses that are impacted by gentrification. What are we doing to help them with being able to compete in markets where rent is rising rapidly? What are we doing to help them do business improvements or deferred maintenance that they might not have been able to do, but need to do in order to stay competitive? in a changing neighborhood. And so, and so I think it's really like, what's that comprehensive policy that is focused on the individual wealth creation, but also having the housing and the businesses and their stability to be able to stay in that neighborhood and remain it's, affordable. It's totally a short game and a long game at the same time. So the supports that have to be there for the people to stay where they are, but long game, we cannot keep having the same conversations. We can't keep saying there's not enough affordable housing or let's preserve affordable housing because guess what? Again, numbers are going to dictate what that really looks like. And so we have to do a better job if we're throwing money at something and we know that the affordable housing piece isn't being sustained, right? Like that's, that's a very real situation. So why not take that money that we're spinning our wheels on and put that in education and put that in the youth to learn coding and get into the tech space and to move into jobs that actually have upward or higher incomes where they can then afford to stay in the communities that they live in right now. Like it has and, to be an and, and game. Yes. That's what I was gonna say. I would argue that there's money to do both. It's not necessarily, let's take the money from housing and put it over here. I would say there's a lot of money that we're spending on things that probably shouldn't be priorities if we are truly investing in equity and truly focused on helping low-income communities stay and age and live in pla the places where they are. And so I think it's really taking a look at our budgets and how resources are allocated and where- But what do we do now in terms of that there's no money in the budget? Like you look at our economic issues that we're having, and I don't mean to be Debbie Downer, like yeah. come at you <laughs> on the other no, side, but, but I, like- the very real, the real conversation that needs to be had is that there is no money. Like our local governments next year, the next two fiscal years are not going to recoup the money that they need to have these programs. So what are we really going to do for real, for real? Because the boat sales and luxury home sales and vacations, they're doing just fine right now. So there is money out there, but what does that look like? How do we tap into that as people of color to actually say, no, we are here to compete and we don't need a handout. Like, let's do this. See, I would argue that the narrative that there is no money, and I'm being very literal in your use of words, no money is not true. There's money out there. It's going to be less money, significantly less. I am not, you know, living in a utopia and pretending like that's not happening. But we are going to make decisions on how that money we do have is used and allocated. And I think that's where this real conversation needs to come up because we're going to spend it on something. And right, so what but are we look at that we're spending it on things and the numbers aren't changing. Like the wait list, like the, the wait list in Fairfax County for affordable housing is years to get into an affordable housing unit. And it's been like that for forever. So it's like, 
where does where does the conversation change? Where does when you talk about the reallocation, it can't just be publicly funded programs and strategies because there's no it's not there. And now that we've had COVID and it's like compounding, let's be real. Like we can theorize, we can talk about policy all day long, but your policies have not really brought about too much change in the past 20 years. I mean, not yours, but you know what I'm saying. I was like, I have yet, but <laughs> soon, soon. But, no, but I, I do want to pull this out because I think that this is really important and that none of this is like a one size fits all thing. And oh, there's for no sure. perfect thing for how we do this. It is not just the public sector's responsibility. I think they play a key role and a huge role, but we need to be tapping in the private sector. If we're bringing in large companies like Amazon and we're constantly competing for new economic development activities that lure these big companies, then yeah, private sector has a role to play. Philanthropy has a role to play. Our banks have a role to play. And I don't think anyone is playing that role correctly. Right. I think it would be too long to go through everything I think. But it's because people aren't right. having the real conversation. Like, they want to pat themselves on the back for doing the bare minimum, and, and we're not seeing any changes. Whether that's private sector, banks, whatever it is, right? Like, it's a problem. But I think that's what Anaya talked to in the episode when she was like, we need to stop talking to and at people. How many meetings have you gone to where it's not a conversation about how do we use these resources differently and how do we get a better impact? But it's more, let me put up a slide and show you how many, you know, units of affordable housing we need, how many people are impacted by this program, how many, it's like, here's everything that's wrong. Let me keep showing the data or let me keep showing you more slides, but I'm not actually going to oh, yeah. any it's time not in this meeting for us to discuss yep. what we could be doing differently. And, and I think that's, that's why we're stuck where we are. And that's why people like and I are so needed because we need to have the conversations with developers, with employers to say, how can you help us invest in our workforce development? Because we want to compete for the jobs that you have available. And I'll use Amazon for an example here to say the jobs that they're going to have in their new headquarters here are six-figure jobs, like upper-income six-figure jobs, right? People that are lower income are not in a position right now to compete for those jobs. So what can we do to get people up to speed to be able to compete? Because the decision has been made. Hiring decisions are being made right now. So we're already left out. We're already and we're already furthering disparities. So the the conversation of allocation of resources and money has to be where in the pipeline can we better invest in people to have them compete for jobs, to have them compete for housing. And then it's a it's kind of a fair game. Like, I don't even like to say that, but it's it can be somewhat equitable. Fairer or more just. But I think I want to push on the pipeline piece because I think what you're pulling out is this has to happen so much earlier than it does. Right now, you're right. We're already left out because these decisions have been made. We were left out when the decision was made for how some of these companies would even come here in the first place and what would be the things that they would give back as their community benefit. And so the conversation needs to be happening from like, our like kindergarten classes or pre preschool oh, and sure. before about how we prepare to be ready. I think the conversation needs to be happening then as well around wealth. I don't think I even started talking about money until I got my first job. And then I was just happy to get some coins. Cause I was like, yes, like I'm making some money, 
lo and behold, other people were doing the same job and making a lot more money mm-hmm. than I was. Did not know that. So like the art of negotiation, how to show up as a black woman in some of these spaces, how to demand what I am worth and what my value is. So I think a lot of that starts there, but then on the policy and like what we need to be demanding from our institutions, it has got to start art earlier. It cannot be you come to me when the decision's made and this is you know, check in the box for lack of a better description. It has to change in terms of what are we actually moving resources to and who's making that decision? Whose opinion are we valuing in making that decision? Yeah. And I'll just my ask money is power. So put your put your money where your mouth is. And if you have it, look at where that high impact ROI is. What does that investment really look like for somebody's lifetime and for their opportunity to compete again for housing that's appropriate, not just housing that's affordable. Like people deserve great housing. People deserve great opportunities for a robust and an awesome quality of life. Like let's start there and looking at how do we get our youth, getting our adults for adult education to a position that they can actually stay and they can thrive where they are, but it's money. Yeah. I have nothing else to add to that. I'm just fired up. Like, I don't know how I go back to feeding Zeke or like whatever, what I was doing before I hopped on this call. But it makes me, I mean, I get passionate about this stuff because I was that person for years, right? Like I was a public health planner talking about health disparities and in, you know, disparities in income and how income is your biggest predictor of health and quality of life. And at the end of the day, it was the same conversation year after year after year because the people that needed to be there, the employers, the investors were not at that table. Their money's going to make more money for themselves, but they can still make more money and invest in a meaningful way if they actually hit people in the pipeline where they're supposed to. And we need to have the conversation that it's not handouts, it's not charity, it's how do we get in the game? How do we flip our money the same way and actually compete and toe the line? So my recommendation is we did an episode just on community investment and community wealth building and like deep dive into both of those things. What does it look like? What does it take? And what it, what is it actually going to take to actually disrupt how it's currently being done in order to do something better? Because this is like the sixth or seventh episode where you and I have gotten very fired up about this and it comes back to money and it comes back to wealth and it comes back to investment. So let's find somebody to talk to about that. Thank you for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. If you are an iTunes listener, please head on over and like and subscribe and leave us a review. If not, we can be found on Spotify as well as our website at checkboxoutreach.com. We're also available on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.